Hello and welcome back to Physics by the River. I'm Junaid, a maths and physics student, and I'm joined today by Ben. Hi Junaid, it's, it's great to be back. Um, really excited to be here. And um, yeah, it's going to be hopefully a really interesting episode today with um, a really interesting guest. Yeah, we're joined today by the one and only uh, Professor Jens Funk. How are you doing today, Jens? Um, well, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Junaid and Ben. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about math, physics, research, and maybe even life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, well, I think to kick off, um, could you tell us about your research in um, automorphic forms and number theory? Um, yes, I guess I could. But first, I would like to advertise that uh, <laughs> there was something completely different. And that is, uh, what did you do this morning at nine o'clock? You weren't at the park one, I suppose, which, of course starts right here at Maiden Castle and um, it's great fun and it's good for you instead of you know lying in bed in whatever state <laughs> you are on a Saturday morning at nine o'clock. Right so after we got this out of the way so um, yes indeed I'm a number theorist and there are various branches of number theory there is algebraic number theory which um, attacks number theory questions with via algebra uh, and variations thereof of arithmetic geometry or algebraic geometry then really via geometric uh, means there is very much analytic number theory where you throw in the broadest sense complex analysis at your at your problems and then there is a third area which is somewhere in between and everywhere and nowhere and that's the theory of automorphic forms and modular forms um, which tries to some extent combine this is um, I would argue it's an, it's one of the increasingly central topics and themes and methods in, in number theory and so in its most basic incarnations, so-called modular forms. Um, at that stage, I currently teach this for the fourth year, so everyone who wonders what they should do next year or in two years' time, do take the modular forms course in, in the math department. Um, it's it's generating series, it's Q series, which some of you might have, uh, might have encountered in combinatorics or otherwise, um, where the coefficients of your generating series have number theoretic meanings, meaning, but on the other hand, they, the the function itself displays a remarkable symmetry as a function of a complex variable, and you study the functions which have these kind kind of transformation properties, the sim symmetry properties, and with this knowledge about these functions, you can then say something about the coefficients of your generating series, the combinatorial number theoretic object. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Mm. Um, so what what kind of um, implications does this have for um, for things beyond theory? Are there kind of applications and, and things that this no. research is well, helping okay. to So develop? applications, one with, if you want to, within the theory was, of course, um, in the early to mid-90s, Andrew Wiles' proof of Fermat's last theorem, mm -hmm. which is, of course, um, some of you will know the, the equation, the generalized Pythagoras equation, a to the n plus b to the n is equal to c to the n, um, a, b, c are integers, and n some power, and of course for n equals to 2, we have many solutions in free many, can you do this for higher n, and of course Fermat asserted you cannot, and he was a lawyer, so meaning um, he didn't uh, give us really good argument. But, <laughs> um, but so that took us then 350 years, roughly, to, to solve this problem. And what is remarkable is uh, the entire power of 20th century's mathematics had to be thrown at this problem. And at the very end of it, um, in the 80s, people realized that this had something to do with modular forms, automorphic forms. And um, be part of would be a consequence of a conjecture which was made some decades ago, which is very, very important to us. 
and um, relating so-called elliptic curves to modular forms. And um, yep, at the very end, the argument went down. Well, if there was a solution, then some kind of modular forms would would need to exist, but it doesn't. Uh, and I mentioned now elliptic curves mm-hmm. in this episode. So modular forms or in the elliptic curves are crucial for internet cryptography or particular mobile file cryptography. Oh, that's really interesting. So so there is a very close relation to this. Um, there are actually some connections to graph theory um, and very, very st- um, deep connections to theoretical physics, which um, um, some of them are older, but in particular in the last 10 to 20 years became um, very, very evident. Uh, that's, that's really interesting because I think we've mentioned before a bit how research can often be quite abstract and uh, something like this that kind of you're researching and it doesn't necessarily have um, a, a particular meaning in terms of like tangibly with kind of technology and things but then as as we move forward with things like internet cryptography as you mentioned that suddenly is something that's moving quite fast at the moment and we, we then look at all this research that's been done previously and s- suddenly there's things that jump out and, and are helpful that we, we could never have been dreaming of using in this way, which is really interesting. Well, indeed, indeed. This is the, of course, I'm a mathematician, hence I'm biased. There's, of course, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics that, um, well, we curiosity-driven research just follow our imagination and sooner or later this will be good for something will be applied except one cannot quite predict where it will be what will it be good for um but i basically do this because i enjoy it oh that's the most important thing yeah for sure Uh, I think it's quite interesting also how um, with things like Fermat's last theorem with the a to the n plus b to the n equals c to n, like even if you have quite the intuitive understanding that maybe there won't be any solutions, like it seems quite apparent, like even in like with our elementary understanding of number theory in second year, like we look at um, proving it for n equals three, like there's no solutions or stuff. We did something like that, but then. Um, <coughs> showing like sort of generalizing it can actually be much more difficult um, yes that's right it's um moreover the Fermat equation which you could argue well who cares <laughs> except of course it's there and you want to climb that intellectual mountain is that it has served the Fermat equation has served as a motivation for quite deep and um, quite deep developments in mathematics. Uh, Sophie Germain in the early 19th century did some remarkable work on this. And then um, Kummer in the 1840s, uh, he made a bit of a breakthrough and the historians, math historians are not quite, uh, or at least I'm not quite aware what the latest research on this is, whether Kummer thought he had actually had a complete proof. But very quickly became apparent uh, that his approach would not quite would would not be able to give uh, the Fermat's last theorem at least not that easily. But in that cause, in that course of trying to fix his idea, which was a great idea, um, he invented ideal numbers, hmm. which then turned into ideals. The notion of an ideal, which all the second year students in algebra now is uh-huh. the, the ideal of a ring in a ring so um and that w- was a truly great development and that continued to be the fermat equations inspired people to produce great mathematics yeah it's it's really powerful how one piece of um research or, or one big question that so many people are curious about and trying to answer can lead to so many other branches of mathematics and so many new ideas being generated. And I think, think there's something really powerful about that. It's like one question as simple as, can we generalize the Pythagorean equation? Is, it can lead to so much, is, is, is something quite astounding. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, maybe having done this now for so many years or even decades, um, I, might, I might take it now for granted and you just pointing this out makes me aware that I maybe shouldn't take it for granted mm -hmm. and um, should be as excited about this as um, I was at, at your age mm -hmm. as a student about these questions. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Um, another thing I wanted to ask was because um, mathematics um, is is quite a different discipline to other scientific disciplines because rather than being evidence based, it's it's all proof based, and it's it's possible in a way that it isn't with physics or chemistry to be able to prove something conclusively for all of eternity, and, and that proof will will never go away. And um, I just wanted to ask you about kind of your thoughts on on mathematical proof and and kind of how that's different to to other disciplines. I mean, you're of course right. <coughs> Mathematics as a deductive discipline is <coughs> very much based on the notion of a proof, and of course, striving to derive. Um, you know, the results by logical arguments going back to the axioms. Um, that all said, still mathematics is carried out by humans. So, and, and hence, a proof is always also a social construct, as in, a theorem is proven if other people, if you have been able to convince other people that your argument is is watertight and works and and as such this notion actually of a proof what constitutes a proof actually has changed over the if you want to since um, since Euclid um, when people realized well say looking at this 50 years or sometimes 500 years later and saying as well that's a bit of a gap here, isn't it? <laughs> but then we go back to this and keep working on it. So it's um, for the moment, it's it's fairly stable what we consider proof, except for that developments in the last 20, 30 years is where we increasingly rely on computer proofs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At some point, if you want to slugging out the remaining 2,300 cases, say, uh, say for the proof of the four color theorem um, for um, the listeners so the four color theorem is the theorem you have a map with your countries and so on and you and of course you want to color your map each country should get a different color well no two adjacent countries should get the same um, color and how many colors do you need at least and it's fairly simple to see that uh, five would do, but but then at the end, f there was the four-color theorem proven that four would always be enough. And the, orig the original proof was reducing it to several cases which were then checked by computer. Now, this was, if you want to, the early uses of um, computer-based uh, computer proofs. Now... The development goes further and basically actually have machines and algorithms proving theorems by themselves or even in some cases even finding them. Um, it's a bit of a frightening prospect, but um, we, probably you will see the day when machines will be better in finding and proving things than human beings. Ah, that, that's something really quite scary almost um that the, the computers could kind of reach the point of being able to do that yeah that's 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 really exciting to think about how that could change over the next few decades and, and centuries i don't know i find it kind of reassuring you know like i'm sure the computers will make a lot less fine errors than we do <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the computers have a, have a bit more accuracy than a human um yeah, because with proofs, I guess there's um, a big question of someone presents you a proof, mm. is it correct? And, and how do you go about kind of verifying someone else's 
argument or, or kind of something that they're trying to assert? What, 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 what's the process with trying to, um, to verify whether someone else's proof maybe misses an edge case or, mm. or if there's a slight problem with it that's difficult to spot potentially? Hmm. Well, I guess my first instance, I just try to read it <laughs> and to read it, which sometimes can take a long, long time. Um, and of course, this is not safe. I referee a paper for a scientific journal. So that's peer review. Uh, colleagues of mine um, would submit a journal to um, submit an article to a journal. And then the editors of the journal ask other colleagues, peers to, um, to review this. Mm -hmm. And at some point, this an article might might end on end up on my desk to be reviewed and to be checked. Mm -hmm. And this sometimes can be very time consuming because, as you point out, you you want to make sure that the paper is correct. Uh, how do I do this? You know, if it's a long paper, you cannot read every single line. You you need to apply your expertise expertise and to identify some arguments or also some results where he says, well, I'm not quite sure about this one. And then you would dive in. Of course, there are several reviewers often for a paper and this is not foolproof. And occasionally, um, something isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. um, usually it's rather the result is probably still right or sufficiently right and there's just a gap. And if it's bad luck, the result is actually wrong. Does <laughs> uh, that actually happen like often where like someone publishes a proof, but then it turns out that what they thought we ended up proving is just isn't correct? Well, it happens once in a while. I'm not sure how often it actually happens. Um, when it actually happens is, well, it is as embarrassing as it is exciting <laughs> because there's something new to be understood. Um, I remember some 20, 25 years ago in differential geometry, there was some classification result which stood for, I think, even decades. And then one grad student, actually one PhD student, actually read through this and didn't understand an argument, kept digging, kept asking, and then it turned out to be, no, there was a big fat gap, and there was one class of objects that existed, which they didn't think, people didn't think that they were existing. Oh, and that turned into a very nice PhD thesis. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but that an entire theory collapses because something down there is completely off that I'm now not quite aware of. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating to think about how how the implications of that can lead to lots of lots of new research and mm. other branches of mm. research, which is quite exciting in a way. Yeah. I also, however, need to um, need to say is that there's also, at least to some extent, in a development in the different direction. If you want to moving away from proofs say that in areas of mathematical sciences, which I may say closer to applications, say for example, statistics or machine learning and, and so on, where they're relying less on proofs mm -hmm. and more focus on the, um, on the applications of this, um, if you want to more of a physics approach to things. Um, and this is equally valid. I mean, the mathematical sciences is, is much larger than just pure mathematics, even though I'm representing pure mathematics and um, keeper of the faith of the proof. Um, one needs to acknowledge that um, it's, uh, there are other way, approaches to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to mathematical sciences. Oh, absolutely. I think um, math, math isn't obviously just about proofs. It's, it's kind of almost, it's a language to to facilitate a lot of other branches of science is is how I sometimes think of it, and it, it's it's quite a useful tool to be able to to think about everything else. Um, I'm not trying to say that it's like it's 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 the god subject, 
but you know it's it's quite helpful it, it can do a lot well <laughs> i need to be careful what i'm saying Ian. <laughs> um yeah, of course you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and to to do and, and to also then say it, um, I think it was Gauss, the one and only Gauss, who said is that mathematics um, is the queen of the sciences, and um, number theory is the queen of mathematics. Um, um, I thank God I'm a number theorist. <laughs> uh, no, seriously. Um, Going back to the number theory is one of the appeals of number theory is that we use every t every tool available. Mm -hmm. So we use algebraic methods, we use analytic methods, we use geometric methods, topologic. We use every tool which is in the arsenal of in math of the mathematical sciences to prove our results. So from that perspective, um, I like to think that number theory is one of the really truly central topics in at least pure mathematics. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting to hear because like from my very entry level um, sort of opinions on number theory, I would have thought like it's just a very sort of niche branch of mathematics. Like I wouldn't have considered it the, the queen or mathematics or whatever at all really. I thought it was quite like, quite, quite tucked away. Just using like simple oh, algebra. Oh, oh, <laughs> I feel like this has been a controversial statement. That last that is a very controversial. I I, I fear that there there may be altercations <laughs> from this. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think it's um, one of the things about maths um, is that every branch and every kind of field of research within maths gets used by every other part of maths at some point. And they all end up being linked together in, in a really interesting way. Um, first of all, Jeanette, you need to be careful what you're saying. <laughs> you don't want your guests to walk out midway through the program. No, no, of course not. So, <laughs> um, but Ben, you're right. It's, this is one of the features, and for me, this is actually a character, um, characterization of interesting good mathematics when it's no longer pure in the methods as saying as well oh this proof isn't great because it's it uses some tools from some other area but it's rather characterization of the strength or the general interest of it mm -hmm. because then it has connections to other areas implications and then usually the exchange goes both ways yeah yeah absolutely mm. um which is by the way also uh one of the remarkable features of mathematics in its relationships to physics. Mm -hmm. um, I know this is a physics program, so I um, I also need to be careful that um, what I saying is that I won't get thrown out for you. <laughs> <laughs> we would never, we would never. Well, you don't quite know what I want to say. <laughs> um, no, it, it is rather remarkable how physics and mathematics interact and uh, enrich each other is um, in the last 10, 15 years, my research, which I was absolutely sure had no connections to physics whatsoever, is I, in the last 10 years, I start to hang out with a theoretical <laughs> mathematical physicist research-wise. Um, just uh, last summer, I uh, participated at a two-month um, research program in Cambridge at the Newton Institute and the title was Physics and Number Theory, Building and Crossing the Bridge. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this quite stunned me in, in various ways, even though I was in abstract aware of this, that uh, modular forms, automorphic forms have close connections to physics, very roughly if you have a, some physical state and you f can form some partition functions thereof where you count some states, parameterized by positive integers, you write down the generating series, and then you hope it's a modular form. Mm -hmm. And um, remarkably often it actually is, uh, but if it isn't, then you want to measure how far it is away from it. And this actually um, happened 
uh, you all, well, most or certainly the second year students will um, know uh, Professor Anne Termina next term in AMV. Um, so in 2010 or 11, Anne showed up in my office. I had no idea why she would and so on. And she said as well, Jens, let me explain you something. Yeah, and she explained then that three mathematical physicists from Japan had written down the so-called elliptic genus for K3 surfaces and um, and wrote down this whatever it was, whatever that is and realized that this had something to do with the representation theory of the so-called Mathieu group. Um, right I kept looking at her said so is well and then she said as well Jens you remember monstrous moonshine and they said of course I do and they says well it appears to be that this is a new case of so-called moonshine I will say a few words about this in a second but this time um, the object is not uh, the uh, a modular function but rather a harmonic um, weak um, um, a harmonic weak mass form, uh, which were objects which uh, I co-invented with an uh, co-invented ten years before that meeting. Hmm. Um, so I was rather stunned, and um, this still hasn't been properly understood. Um, so what is moonshine? Um, so in the sixties and seventies. Uh, people started embarked on the classification of all finite simple groups. It's something which, in, if you want to think about groups as or simple groups as the atoms of algebra, mm -hmm. and uh, trying to classify them all, and they knew or at that point they suspected, quite didn't know, but suspected that there was a large, a monstrous object out there which they hadn't found or constructed yet, but they already gave it a name, the monster group. Mm. Um, it, there was also a smaller one, which is known as the BB monster. And they didn't know whether it existed, but they knew their properties. And one of the invariants of that object involved the number 196,883. <laughs> Fine. Except that there's an object in modular forms, the so-called Klein's J invariant, which also comes with certain numbers. And one number there is 196,884. And when this was uh, explained to John Conway, um, the superstar at Princeton, and one himself, he looked at this and said, this is crazy, this is moonshine. What have you been drinking? So since then we call this kind of phenomena moonshine and these this was then uh, proven by Borchertz for which he received the Fields Medal in the uh, Fields Medal in the 90s and in particular it uses methods or inspiration from uh, mathematical physics. So out of nowhere. So now we have Mathieu moonshine, we have Umbral moonshine, um, there are other other f forms of moonshine now, which I have now forgotten, <laughs> and we are continue to be amazed. Oh, that's great! You know, you always hear about like maths being used to propel physics forward, but I haven't really heard before about physics sort of pushing maths forward before. Well, there's there's all sorts of all sorts of things in in the natural world, particularly that are kind of there's, there's questions about th things like geometry that crops up naturally that evolution has kind of made happen mm. and and trying to explain uh, the, some of the things that are going on with maths is kind of is, is using it the other way around and it, it's it's interesting how how that sort of thing can can go both ways as you say oh uh, yes no absolutely um, um in particular since this is a physics program here is um, I happily acknowledge the importance of physics <laughs> to, to, uh, to mathematics but also to, to my area of research. 
It's yeah. on the record now. You can't take it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I've, yeah. I've been I've been advised that I should be <laughs> diplomatic. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you, Jens, about um, about the the history of maths, which we've we've kind of talked a little bit about. But um, what would you say is the importance of of learning about the history of, of the development of of maths? When learning about maths, is, is it enough? To just learn about the results and 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 kind of all the things that we know, or, or is it also important to to know about how these things have been developed and and the kind of the human stories behind them? I suppose you could just learn mathematics just by, in a certain sense, how we do it. We present you the things how they are now and how we understood them, understand them now, and as such such if you want to they this represents the state of the art and this is what we should do and we will continue to do so uh when i teach you or uh, you know in the analysis one course last year and um, i had great fun explaining a bit about the historical developments or even sometimes some of the human stories behind it then i do this is first of all it's fun but also to give you a bit of a broader understanding that mathematics is not that monolithic block. If you want to, yes, there are the results. Once they're proven and they stand there for eternity, mm -hmm. that you know, there is a development and there are things which um, needed, to be under, needed to be understood. And people didn't quite understand them. So, whatever that notion is, the notion of uniform convergence, which was then um, in particular by Weierstrass championed in the, I suppose, 1840s, um, which really was is that his predecessors, there were some aspects they haven't quite understood yet. And, well, that didn't mean that, it, that the work of Newton, Leibniz, Cauchy, Euler, and so on was invalid. But rather is that there was a further development. Mm -hmm. There is, and because the arguments the the predecessors of Aristotle and so on made, they were still valid, but they had a bit of a gap which needed to be addressed, and um, things moved forward from there. Uh, so I, that I would like to get in there, and also that also if you want to the variety where things are coming from mathematics is a, it's a very very global enterprise currently but of course in the past um, mathematics wasn't invented by white europeans uh, it's much much older and much more fundamental than that and trying to get you a bit of a sense um of this aspect as well i mean the human nature i suppose i really tell this just for fun yeah, I, th I think it, it adds um, a whole new level to um, to mathematics teaching, mm. um, particularly at university where it's it's quite different to high school, and it's it's not just about um, here's how to do sums, here's how to get these results. Mm. It's it's learning about kind of about how this has all come about and and kind mm. of some some of the stories behind it. And I think mm. that that's really interesting to to, uh, to add into a, a university course. Um, yes, I think so, and but I have to admit, I merely do it for the fun of it. <laughs> of course, I, I care about quite a bit of the history of things, so um, uh -huh. that's uh, I have to come clean here. That's my real motivation. Uh, that said, let me make some um, other shameless advertisement. <laughs> so currently, in the Tunstall Gallery uh, in the castle at University College, there's an exhibition on Bishop Tunstall. Mm -hmm. And why there is one is because... In 1522, so exactly 500 years ago, Tunstall published the first printed math book in uh, the first uh, uh, in print uh, math book printed in in England mm -hmm. uh, exactly 500 years ago. And um, he does elementary mathematics. He does also, if you want to, word problems and all kinds of things. And um, based on this. Uh, colleagues and I was involved in this as well so um, we contacted um, the, the castle the university um, 
uh, exhibition team and but also the uh, society um the uh, society for history and mathematics here in in the uk so we had a symposium on this um in september where uh, tunstall and his work was discussed and there's lots of things there to learn um and also about the person tunstall mm -hmm. who was um not just the bishop and then later the bishop of durham but he was actually um a european scholar he studied in padua in italy and then returned and but he was very well connected he had connections to erasmus of rotterdam he corresponded with thomas moore more so um he was exactly part of this gang and then he wrote a math book <laughs> and the first the printed one in this one so um which um everybody all listeners please embark on a pilgrimage to the castle and um, even if you're not a member of university college and have a look at um uh, bishop tunstall um the person the mathematician but also the the politician um, the early half of the 16th century were um quite turbulent times under henry the eighth and his successors and um, tunstall managed to survive them all just about so. <laughs> yeah that's that's really interesting i'll have to go and check that out thank mm. you okay um earlier you mentioned that you do mathematics almost purely just because of the love you have for it so could you um maybe mention a bit like why mathematics attracted you as a discipline more than say physics or anything else oh with physics that's very uh, that's very simple i never cared about physics <laughs> wow i see no i, I, oh. I can understand that i can sympathize <laughs> with that all right okay so that said it's on the way here to the studio i actually thought about this and um the, the basic question why on earth did i study mathematics and the story i i'm telling you now is a bit it's, it's almost alarming really and as it is maybe even moving to some extent is basically i knew that at age five all right this is um this is the story is told by um by a by a friend of uh, my parents and of course you're at some party and they ask you what do you want to be when you're grown up and of course you want to be a fireman a policeman or a professional footballer and these you know doing things and apparently little jens said i want to be a mathematician right well and so i am so i did become a mathematician however it's really alarming because at age five i could have not possibly grasp what that could have possibly mean mm -hmm. so that was a thought which was really put in my brain by the grown-ups yes i was very good at the numbers could count and this and so on way say a year or two before others still that idea was planted in my head by grown-ups when i was four or five years old uh, i did think about whether i should have um, back then when i was 18 had to go to uni and so on whether i am um, should study law instead and to the great dismay of my father um, i was accepted also to study law and then i um, ditched ditched this and um, went on to study math and the world is better for it <laughs> i'm not sure whether the world but um <laughs> i think i did fine uh, durham if nowhere else <laughs> oh durham if nowhere else has has become a best place for it yeah that's quite interesting and um, most people don't make their mind up so early i think i was still like considering uh launching an artistic career at age five I, I don't know what I, I, I thought back then. I, d I don't think a career was, was really on, on my mind. I, 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 least of all maths, I think it's, it's fascinating that you, you clearly have such a deep love and passion for maths. That, um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's great. Yeah, I was more looking towards becoming like a Pokemon trainer at that wow. age, I think. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
Well, this is of course not my age, but I, I suppose conceivably you could have a career, by now you could have a career in this. Mm-hmm. As a Pokemon trainer, <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be quite hard. Uh, you'd have to be inside a video game, Junaid, and I don't know how easy that is at the moment. Give, give it a few centuries. Ten, they might develop the, oh, the technology. Well, I, d- I don't know. I, d- I don't follow the technology. I don't follow it. We'll just wave oh. over innovations in maths and physics, and then my dream can become a reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe even your studies might, might be helpful for it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. There you go. Mm. There That's you go. my motivation from now. Wow. Gonna yeah. make the, the Pokemon trainer dream real. Yeah. So, so um, w- what motivates you to, to keep uh, researching new things in maths, Jens? Is it, is it just the curiosity of, of answering questions? Or, or, or um, are you motivated by kind of the applications as your work kind of has connections with physics and, and technology and, and that becomes more apparent? Or what, what motivates you the most? No, I'm, I don't know. The applications, this doesn't motivate me. Mm-hmm. I do pure research, curiosity-driven research. Is, um, I do it, first of all, I'm, I'm simply curious. I want to know and it's fun. And in particular, it's fun since I'm not doing this alone. I have a set of collaborators, the interactions with them. This is really to a good extent which motivates me. I'm not rarely sitting all alone in my study in the office or in the, or wherever. Look, this is, I do this with and if you want to even sometimes for others. Mm-hmm. So for me is also mathematics as a social discipline. Uh, it's so much more fun if you do mathematics with one or two other people. When you stumble along, you make mistakes, you fix it, and then you see the light. Uh, I guess this is one. This is the, why I'm doing this. Is it's it's fun, and in particular, it's fun to do it with others. Yeah, we talked. And to and <laughs> apparently, it's even good for something. Yeah, it, I mean, if the, if that happens, if if it has a use at the end, mm. then that's a bonus. That, that's great. <laughs> well, it's you know, I'm I'm over, of course overdoing this. I'm I'm very much aware that the things I'm doing um, are relevant or will become at some point relevant. Hopefully, um, also by educating others, you or having PhD students. I actually have one um, uh, one former PhD student who who now works. Um, at a place which shall not be named in Chartenham. Uh-huh. So it's, um, and I have a few mathematical brothers, meaning uh, other students of my um, PhD advisor who work for the uh, NSA in, in the US. Oh, wow. So there's also this aspect of, of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, I don't know and I don't really want to know whether my actual research is actually considered by them. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't necessarily need to know. Um, it, it, you, you can do research for the sake of curiosity and I think it's it's, it's wonderful to be able to do that as well as being able to do it motivated by um, all sorts of applications in, in various fields. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, we talked about the social aspect with um, Daniele last week, a bit, didn't we? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to hear that it's um, sort of a common sentiment. It seems that the sort of communal aspect of academia is one of our oh, highlights. Absolutely. So, um, so you had Daniele Dorigoni here last yeah. week. All oh, right. Yeah. So, first of all, I'm upset that you had him before me. <laughs> but second of all, of course, Daniele is one of the mathematical physicists who are not often, but on a regular basis discuss this and he was also in Cambridge uh, over the summer mm-hmm. and um, and more than once Daniele asked me a question about modular forms or present me some insight and, and this is from from his angle that's yeah. great yeah so um yeah so Daniele is exactly one of the, the people I would talk to on the on the physics side oh, that's so nice to hear yeah, yeah. Um, so what then at the end what Made you study math well. 
mathematics or physics? I, I would say, um, for me, it's it's that that curiosity of being able to answer questions and uh, understand the question by translating it into this um, this language of, of mathematics. And there's often so many different approaches you can take to answering that question um, by by considering it from different angles mm. um, and approaching it using all sorts of different tools and how everything is surprisingly linked um, uh, as, as we've mentioned earlier about how different branches all contribute to one another mm. and and that to me is something that's that's fascinating that all these things that seem like separate ideas are, are somehow linked and, and they're all one and the same uh, and that's something that's that's really powerful and I, I i can't wait to kind of see where my studies can take me with with finding out more about that excellent for me i would say i guess it's the sort of fundamental nature of maths and physics like you can have an intuitive like intuitive understanding of how a world works like you jump you come back down but it's not until you kind of get the mathematical modelling that you get with physics that you can say, okay, well, I can predict exactly how fast I'll be coming down, things like that. And then also, this is more physics and maths, I suppose, but with things like cosmology and astronomy, we really can sort of build understanding of where we fit in the universe. And I think that's just really interesting. It is, but if I may say so, so we have the, you know, the Hubble and now the James Webb telescope and they're producing this spectacular photos, but of course, much more than that, uh, spectacular insights is, but then sometimes I do wonder, then they, we see photos of a supernova of a star blown up, I don't know how many million light years ago, and I... I wonder whether my my integers, as monstrous as they might be, you know, when I when we might ponder the question, how can we factor an integer with two hundred digits, or my modular forms, whether that's more real than a supernova from how many million years ago? That's all very much a matter of philosophy. I, th I think it's it's um, it's it's really interesting how human nature can be kind of captured by by the the curiosity of of either something in the galaxies that that happened so long ago, so far away, or or something that is kind of so abstract and arguably doesn't really tangibly exist in the world, and and all of these things that kind of make people think and, and you get all these kind of um stories about the the history of of research and kind of the direction that all these brilliant minds have, have been taken um i mean there's there's euler and gauss the two obvious examples that mm. spring to mind who goodness only knows how, how they were thinking about so many things all at once and, and captured by by kind of the curiosity of it all uh, i think that's something really powerful Yes, indeed, but um, no, there's no but. <laughs> um, just saying is you should also maybe mention Ramanujan in this one. He was, oh, the, he yeah, was yeah. the man who knew infinity and quite a bit of the number theory and modular forms research was driven by insights or, if you want to, assertions Ramanujan made in his notebooks or even in, the, in his uh, letter to Hardy and his work together with Hardy. The... Um, you might have seen the movie, The Man Who Knew Infinity, uh, and the question on the partition numbers. So, a partition of, of five are all the ways how you can divide five into a sum of smaller pieces. So, five plus nothing, four plus one, three plus one plus one, three plus two, and so on. And it's clear that they're finding many possibilities. So you have the number, the partition number of five, ten, of any other number, of any number. And you like to have explicit formulas for this. Um, and there's a nice recurrence relation, which, however, becomes very quickly, very really intangible to handle. It's, it's, it doesn't, simply doesn't work. Uh, 
um, partition number of 200 is already monstrous. These numbers go very, very quickly um, in the movie, and that's actually all what happened in series. Uh, Major Maroon, I believe, uh, computed this, but Ramanujan said there is a better way of doing this. Um, writing down an infinite series, which, however, the first few terms are so close already to the answer that they give you a better way of expressing this. Or and there are congruences which Raman Jean found and actually proved um, in uh, in August when I was in Cambridge. Um, we made a pilgrimage to the Wren Library at Trinity College. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were supposed to see some stuff in Newton. Yeah, yeah, Newton, fine. But then there were also the original manuscripts and also the so-called lost notebook by Ramano Jean and the librarian got it out. We were allowed to touch it. We <laughs> couldn't believe it. And reading it, it's this immaculate handwriting. They was deriving. He was actually there in the mode of actually deriving things. Uh, also, uh, Ramano Jean's last letter to Hardy, um, the so-called, uh, so-called mock theta functions, uh, which we now finally also understood or to larger standards by um, by research on automorphic forms, and and I'm glad that I was able to contribute to this as well. It's um so never forget that never forget and underestimate Ramana Shahan in this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's important to to remember mm. all sorts of people like that. Yeah, mm. absolutely. It must have been very interesting to have, get that sort of direct insight into how someone like that who has clearly such a like deep understanding of mathematics sort of thought it was it was to some extent being that the library seeing these manuscripts holding that it was it was almost a spiritual experience <laughs> and you know occasionally i do wonder whether i should have studied law or something <laughs> else but these are the moments when when you realize no I did study the right thing. <laughs> you made the right choice. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, it's great to hear. Yeah, I wonder how they got had such a deep understanding there. Maybe they got the, the runners high from a park run. <laughs> uh, I, I I strongly doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> never know, never know. Okay. Um, well, it's been great talking to you, Jens, but our time is very sadly nearly up. Yeah, I think maybe it's best that we wrap up here. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a perfect note to end on. I oh. think it's it's great to have moments like that that can really inspire you, and, and mm. that's great to hear about. Yeah. Well, I have to thank you for having me. Uh, it was great fun indeed. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Do you have any uh, last advertisements that you want to plug before <laughs> we sign off? Well, in, when you're a fourth-year math students, do take modular forms. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. Modular forms is the way to go. Um, thank you all for listening, and um, we'll be back in two weeks for more Physics 5 Over.